Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? We're in Hebrews 11. We're going to begin in verse 24. We're going to talk about the life of Moses in this chapter. Hebrews 11, verse 24. Hear now God's word. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. Let's pray together. Father, you hold our lives in our hands. We know that you're able to shape and prioritize our affections, to turn our hearts to you, to give us the things that we're to deny and give us the things that we are to desire. And so we submit ourselves to you this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we've been saying from the outset as we study Hebrews chapter 11, that faith according to Hebrews 11, according to the writer's mind, is never something that is simply a back pocket creed. It's not a statement of beliefs that we can um, subscribe to with our minds. This is not just believing in our minds. Faith according to Hebrews is a posture of banking with our entire lives. To say that another way, given the right set of circumstances, the person of Noah that we studied, he could have recited for you the Apostles' Creed if he knew it. You just would have had to hand him a hammer while he was doing it because the man was building an ark by faith. He was taking the content of his faith and he was working it out in his life and he could only recite it in the context of doing what God was calling him to do as a believer. There are no armchair faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the stuff of boat building and baby making. It is banking one's life on God. So when we get to our passage and we study our verses, I want us to pay special attention to the verbs of faith. There's a bunch of verbs that happen here. And as we study them and as we understand them, they're going to lead us in two directions. They're going to first show us in Moses's life denial, and then they're going to show us desire. Denial and desire, these are two aspects of faith in Moses's life, and these are two aspects in the life of every single believer. So let's talk about denial first. Look at our passage and look at these verbs. Most of them that are in these verses are in the negative, so to speak refused, chose mistreatment, not enjoyed, considered reproach, left Egypt, endured. The first act of faith for Moses and for us is self-denial. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And this costly grace that Jesus offers to us that's demonstrated in the life of Moses is such a far cry from the cut-rate version peddled in American evangelicalism today. It takes time to get in this passage and absorb exactly what's happening here in the life of Moses. 
We said last week that Moses' parents, they made a miraculous move. They put Moses in a basket in the river and he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and he was adopted by her. He was brought into Pharaoh's house and into his palace and that's where he grew up. That's where he spent his formative years. Verse 24 in our passage says when he grew up and the Greek there could be translated as when he became of age and it can also be understood as when he grew in stature and established himself. So at the outset of this verse, you're understanding that Moses is really coming into his own. He's really realizing himself. He's really making a name for himself. Stephen, when he talks about Moses in Acts chapter 7, he says of this time that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Moses had everything. Moses, in this position, where he was in Pharaoh's palace, he had absolutely everything. He had riches, he had power, he had comfort, security, prestige, reputation, abilities, prospects. Moses had established himself in his position, and he had absolutely everything he could have wanted. Now, what's so interesting about this list and thinking about what's true of Moses at this time is to realize that none of the things I just read are sins in and of themselves, right? Wealth and power are not automatically sins. It is not a sin to make a six-figure income. It's not a sin to be given power and authority over other people. In fact, some might argue that where Moses was in Pharaoh's palace would have been the perfect place for him to serve God's people. He has a seat of government. He has authority. If he was trying to help his fellow brothers, the Israelites, he should have stayed in Pharaoh's palace. And from there, he could have used that wealth and authority to then help Israel. After all, that's what happens with his great, great uncle, Joseph, right? Joseph stays in authority and he's able to help the people of Israel. But that's not the path that Moses took because something begins to Um, creep into his life. He begins to feel a dissonance between what he has and what God is calling him to do. All of a sudden, some of these things that he has aren't what they automatically appear. Riches are not for him just a neutral revenue stream, but they're a temptation for him to be satisfied in what they offer. Prestige is not something that's just happening outside of himself in the opinions of others, but it's a desire that's growing in his heart that is now being stroked, and he wants more of it. Power is not just his his order in the pecking order. It's not just the authority he has over other people, but it's a means to an end for him, which it offers to him a place where he can serve himself and not others. And so for all that he had, Moses is realizing he cannot possibly serve both God and mammon together. For him, to stay in Pharaoh's house would have been, verse 25, to turn his back on God and to dabble in the fleeting pleasures of sin. He leaves it. He runs from it. He departs from Pharaoh's house and he leaves all of this prestige and wealth behind. Now you read that and that kind of self-denial is so absolutely foreign to us in our American culture. I mean, when's the last time that I considered what I have to potentially be at odds with who I am? When's the last time somebody pulled me aside and said, brother, I think you should consider having less? 
in a world where it is my inalienable right to have, you're speaking a foreign language to me when you start to talk about giving up. This is so incredibly foreign to us because our American culture is teaching us that faith is something that happens in our minds and not in our lives. It can be compartmentalized. It can be separated. It's something that's an activity of our heart and our minds, but we're not going to see it in our hands and in our feet. This is no better illustrated to me, in my opinion, than to go into Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble (laughs) trumpets this piece of American culture better than anywhere else I see. It's a visible demonstration because in Barnes & Noble, you can find Bibles that are shelved directly next to self-help chicken soup for the soul, right? And it's under some bland vanilla category like religiosity, spirituality, self-actualization. And so that means you've got books next to each other. The one is describing how you can be the best you you can possibly be. And the other book is bidding you to come and die. And the idea within Barnes & Noble is that you can pick up either book You can go to the cafe, you can sip a peppermint mocha, and whatever happens between you and the book that you pick up interchangeably is going to happen in your mind and heart, and it's not going to disturb the other customers, right? It's an activity that's exclusively happening with you. It doesn't matter which book you pick up. You're going to be just as tame when you came into Barnes & Noble as when you leave. That's the idea. Growing up in my house, uh, our big meal was on Sunday. Sunday lunch, that's when my mom made a roast chicken, she made sides, and that was kind of our big meal. And I had a very distinct way of eating that meal. I didn't want, as a lot of kids don't, anything on the plate to touch, right? Uh, I got the chicken in one corner, and then as far as I could, I put the green beans over on this side, mashed potatoes over here, stuffing over here, and and I didn't want them to touch each other. And if in the course of eating, a green bean kind of rolled over and bumped into the mashed potatoes, I would leave the soiled green bean where it lay. I just couldn't bear the thought of eating that thing because it had been contaminated. Well, meanwhile, my younger brother, he had this barnyard table manner of putting everything in the center of his plate, right? He would start with the pile of mashed potatoes and then he'd put everything on top. And I think just to bother me, he would then mix it together with a spoon and it looked like a car wreck or something. This debris of limbs sticking out of the mashed potatoes. It was terrible. That's another visualization for me. And here's my warning to all of us. Beware of this kind of compartmentalization. Beware of a Christian life that looks like my Sunday dinner plate in which you have Christianity in one pile and you have your money in another pile and you have your relationships in another pile and you have the goals for your life in another pile and never the two are going to touch. In fact, you could just as easily trade the ham of Christianity for the roast beef of agnosticism, and it's not going to change anything on the plate. I'm going to spend my money the exact same way. I'm going to pursue the exact same kind of relationships that I did before. I'm going to have the exact same goals for my life as I did with one set of beliefs as I do for the other because they just belong in this tame corner of my plate. As much as it pains me to say, my younger brother's plate was closer to the kingdom. By faith, Moses understands God as supreme.
supreme and God's people as his family, and it changes the entire course of his life. He was headed in one direction. He had one set of abilities and prospects and reputation that was laid out comfortably before him. And as he comes to a realization of these things that are true over the world and not least within his heart, his life changes in an entirely different direction. The money pile, the prestige pile, the comfort pile, that plate gets thrown across the room and rearranged under this new priority he finds in Christ. Every single person in this room can look at the life of Moses, can see this list of things in his life, and for some of us, we have some of those things and they're not a sin, and for some of us, we have some of those things, and we nurse and we stroke and we guard and we protect and we pursue those things as idols in our life. Riches, power, Comfort, security, prestige, reputation, abilities. I'm only now realizing that those are idols whether you have them or you don't have them. You either have them and you guard them and you stroke them and you want to grow them or you don't have them and so you spend your time thinking about them and longing for them. This is what John Owen says about these things. Let the things of this world be increased and multiplied to their greatest measures and degrees imaginable It alters not their kind. They are temporary, fading, and perishing still. Where these things take our attention from God, where these things begin to compete with God for worship, where these things begin to um, keep us from serving another person, they are temporary, fading, and perishing still. They're meaningless. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. But the Christian life is not all denial, sacrifice, and sorrow. We've talked about denial. We need to talk about desire. Because I think you could read this passage and begin to think that Moses was acting selflessly, that he did all of these things without expecting anything in return. And actually, we celebrate that kind of service, right? The person who does a good deed and doesn't expect any kind of reciprocity, he doesn't expect anything in return, that is a truly pure good deed. That's the pinnacle of piety in our minds. But if you thought that about Moses, you thought that he was all about denial and not about desire, you'd be missing the key motivation in his life. Look at verse 26. He begins to ponder his options. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses denied himself for desire's sake. Moses gave up something so that he could get something. This is what Moses is doing. He's making a very thoughtful move. He's placing Christ on one side and Egypt on the other side, which is interesting that our passage says Christ. Once again, our Old Testament brothers and sisters, they knew more about Christmas than we give them credit for, right? He knew something about God promising a Messiah and what life in that Messiah would be like. And so he thinks about Christ on one side and Egypt on the other. But it's not just those categories as they stand. He was actually thinking about the reproach of Christ on the one side. 
He was thinking, if I live this life in the Messiah, it's going to cost me something. There is going to be loss. There's going to be pain. And so the reproach of Christ is on one side, and Egypt, all the world had to offer, was on the other side. And get this, because this is a key to our own Christian life. In a great act of God-given self-interest, Moses saw far more wealth to be had in self-denial with Christ than in self-indulgence with Egypt. He saw those two things before him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, which by that he means deny you so that you can have more of me. You can desire me. Denial and desire, learning this life, this Christian dance of denying what is in the flesh so that we can desire this life in the spirit. Let me close with this thought. There was a Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers who preached a brilliant sermon that is entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a a brilliant, brilliant sermon that I hope to continue to reference again and again. He said in that sermon, basically there's two ways to attack sin and worldliness in our life. As we think about our lives, as we think about the confession we made before God and we long for holiness, there's two ways to go about killing sin in our life. Number one, the first way is to expose the vanity of it and to try to stop it in our, it, it, its tracks, right? So we wake up tomorrow morning with First John in our minds. I don't want to love the world, and I don't want to love the things of the world. I don't want to love power. I don't want to love money. I don't want to love sex. I don't want to define my life around these things. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. That's one approach to pursuing righteousness is to deny those things. And Chalmers says, that's just not going to work. That's not a good idea. In fact, he calls that incompetent and ineffectual. No offense to all of us who are trying to stop sin cold turkey. Chalmers says, that's really, really stupid. You can't do that because your heart is not designed for that. You can't get rid of something without replacing it with something else. And so he describes this second pursuit of holiness that is all about desire you replace the old desire with a new desire. As you begin to see the person of Christ, as you begin to understand who he is and what he has accomplished and the reward that he is bringing with him for all who seek him, as that looms large on our horizon, we will find that the thing begins to elbow out other affections that we had in its place because there is an expulsive power in a new affection. You get that thing in the center and that thing begins to grow and all of a sudden other desires, other dreams that we have, they become displaced by this new affection that takes so much room in our hearts. The treasures and the trinkets of Egypt grow smaller and less desirable so that even loss and pain with Christ seems preferable to what we once had. We find the presence of Jesus and what he comes to do in our lives so sweet, so lovely, so precious, and so undeniable 
we would rather spend a day with it than a thousand days spent elsewhere. Let's pray together. God is that kind of affection that we hunger for. We want it, we need it, we long to desire you. And as we do that, I pray that this new affection would displace old affections that clamor in our hearts for attention. Let us pursue you, let us desire you, let us deny what we have so that we can take up what you give us in Christ Jesus, we ask in his name, amen.